0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are talking to Ma- Megan Fraser about the do's and don'ts of using an archive for your research. Megan is an archivist at the Research Institute for Contemporary Outlaws. Welcome to the show, Thank you so
1: much for having me and for asking me to be a part of it.
0: I am so glad you're here to teach us archival etiquette. It's so <laughs> such an important thing to know, and it's something I wish uh, I had known before I ever went to my first archive, but it's never too late to learn. Um, but before we delve into that, will you please tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Sure. Um... I grew up in Southern New Jersey and I moved to New York to go to New York university where I got a um, degree in history as an undergrad. And then shortly after I finished college, I got a job at the New York historical society working in the manuscript department. And that's where I kind of realized my calling in life was to work with special collections. So, um, I got a master's degree in library and information science from Pratt Institute. And since then, I've worked um, in New York, in Philadelphia, in Massachusetts, and in Los Angeles. And I currently live in Los Angeles with my wonderful husband, who's also an archivist, and is my partner at my current job. So
0: if we could unpack that a little bit. Sure. Um, Had you ever used an archive before you started working in one?
1: Yes. And um, actually, my, yeah, my kind of origin story is that uh, when I was in 10th grade in high school, um, my AP history teacher gave us an assignment to, uh, to do original research. And I ended up looking at the newspaper collections at the Vineland Historical Society in Cumberland County, New Jersey, and uh, where the extremely nice public services person uh, let me I can't remember if she broke the rules for me or not, but, um, at any rate, I was like 16 and, um, you might've had to been 18 to use the collections, but, uh, I was there with my father who was also, uh, um, a school teacher. He was the librarian at the high school and, Um, so I was doing this research project and it was just incredible to me as a 16 year old that, you know, this like really old stuff (laughs) was still being cared for and was hanging around and that there were people who would let me use it, you know, and touch it and, uh, engage with the material. And then, um, I'm not sure how this happened exactly, but as an undergrad, uh, I didn't do a tremendous amount of work in primary sources, but you know, a little bit. So it was really, um, it was really that high school experience. And then, uh, you know, just kind of like diving right into my job at New York Historical that taught me about what archives really were and what they mean and how they can be used and why they're so incredible.
0: And the different archives you've worked at, um, they've, been devoted to very different kinds of collections. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of archival work that you've done?
1: Sure. Um, so in New York, uh, the collections were um, just really extraordinary, uh, really like the founding documents of, of American history. And they dovetail very nicely with collections like the Library of Congress and um, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Uh, so a lot of early American material, um, also very heavy in civil war uh, related items. Uh, one of the things that I got to do there was um, I worked on an exhibition uh, that had a letter from every war that uh, America had been engaged in uh, from the revolution to Vietnam. So um and then other things I did were, uh, in addition to you know, manning the reference desk and, and helping researchers, was um, I would do transcripts of Civil War diaries. Uh, I worked on exhibitions. Um, what else? Uh, worked on publications. So, but as I said, it's mostly uh, like early American history. And when I had studied history um, in school, it was more. Um, I was more inclined toward European history and Irish history in particular. So when I moved to New York and, you know, when I took this job at New York historical, I had to relearn all of my, um, American history, uh, you know, revolutionary war generals and <laughs> those types of folks, um, who I hadn't really, uh, talked about since maybe like fifth or sixth grade history. So that was a real education for me. And, um, And then at the Maritime Museum, uh, it was, you know, largely materials dealing with sailing or um, the U.S. Navy. Um, But there I did a project called Ladies Who Launch, which was based on um, the photographs of uh, ship launching ceremonies from a local shipyard. And uh, what I really liked about that is that even though you know, most of the records were very like uh, machine heavy and um, technology and uh, how else would you say like um, like built environment. The photographs of these women, you know, breaking champagne bottles on on ships, and you know they were all wearing like lovely hats and amazing clothes, and they had these giant bouquets of flowers, and it was very feminine <laughs> in the in contrast to like the kind of heavy masculine uh, labor done in the shipyards. So the idea that you could study fashion, for example, at a maritime museum was interesting for me to, to share with people. Uh, And at UCLA, um, most of the collections were 20th century material. So that was a big change for me from the work that I had done in New York. And, um, I worked with a bunch of artist papers and um, fashion designers and folks like that. In addition to uh, diplomats and um, writers and um, who else? Historians, I guess. And. And then in Worcester, Massachusetts, the American Antiquarian Society is known for its collection of materials prior to 1876. And they endeavor to collect one of everything printed in America from 1620 to 1876. And their collections are phenomenal and just so rich and deep and cover things like, you know, calendars and valentines and, um, de visite and uh, manuscripts and books and newspapers. So I've been really privileged to work with, you know, a wide variety of material. And actually in my current job, um, I'm working also with uh, textiles and film and photographs and in addition to papers. So, uh, so yeah, just the, the variety of actual formats has been um really educational in my throughout my career.
0: So can we talk a little bit about your current position? It's a really fascinating idea that there is a Research Institute for Contemporary Outlaws. And it also opens up some really fascinating um, sub-themes for us about um, sensitivity of certain kinds of collections, um, privacy rights of things that are donated to archives. Um, how collectors and donors feel about certain kinds of materials, and uh, how archivists and scholars handle things that maybe have a slightly sensitive nature to them, can you um talk to us about any of those things you'd like to dive
1: into? <laughs> sure um, the place I work now, the Research Institute for Contemporary outlaws, is the brainchild of a collector um, and his focus is um like 1950s and 60s uh, era motorcycle clubs from Southern California. And of course, within this material, um, you're going to find some things that are um, kind of sensitive in nature and um, controversial perhaps. And we're currently uh, open only by invitation. So we don't have the same kind of researcher base that my previous positions have had but uh, as I said he hopes to kind of turn this into a museum and make this um, more publicly accessible sometime in the future um, but one of the things that I think researchers might be interested to know and and potential donors would would be that um, there are systems and protocols in place to make these kinds of you know, perhaps difficult or controversial collections um, safe for use and also um, respectful and uh, maintaining privacy. So, for example, if you have, you know, a family archive and um, it turns out that there's some well, let's just be vague and say, let's just say skeletons in the closet, no matter what they might be. (laughs) Um, If you have concerns about those kinds of things ending up in an archive, but you also have a feeling that the information provided from those archives is useful for scholarship, um, we always, archivists generally try to not put restrictions on material. But if for example, you wanted to uh, donate some material and put a time restriction on it, like it can't be open for 25 years or something like that. Or um, there can be selective redaction of things like social security numbers. Um, I guess the point I want to make there is that there's uh, if there's something that you think is potentially troublesome um, or embarrassing, uh archivists have ways of making sure that uh, the information that you might find troublesome, <laughs> I guess, uh, is not, you know, super blasted out to the public or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, I guess the, the thing to know is that there's... There's definitely room for difficult material in archives, and it just makes the historical record better when we have materials from, um, say, underdocumented communities or um, people that are traditionally haven't been collected in the past. Um, and one of uh, another thing that's really wonderful about kind of reaching out to those communities is making it clear that you know, they, may, they might think that they're just saving their old stuff. But to an archivist or to a researcher, an historian, um, the material is so fantastic and great uh, potential for research that when you explain to someone, like, oh, yeah, I know that you just think this is stuff that you've been hiding under your bed for 20 years, but a researcher would be really excited to see this stuff and, uh, you know, c- trying to... Um, trying to uh, make sure people understand that is uh, is really rewarding. And I've had so many donors say like, really, you want this old stuff? Like, it doesn't seem that important. And when I explain, no, really, (laughs) it is exactly that important. And that's why we want it. It's a it's a great feeling.
0: There's something that I call the antique roadshow effect. There's this a TV show where people have unusual things and they they get to have it appraised for this PBS show, and they're all very hopeful that it's worth quite a bit of money. Um, and um, you know, worst case scenarios, they get provided a lot of the background and history of their item, whether it turns out to be worth quite a bit of money or not. But when people are at home. Perhaps they've inherited a relative's house or a box of stuff from someone's attic, and they're trying to determine on their own if it has value. The idea of monetary value can be sort of a false marker of how worth something is to history um, and if whether or not it's worth preservation. Um, it's not really how much you can get on eBay or, or another resale site, but, but what it might hold... Um, for scholars doing a variety of types of social and historical research work, um, can you talk a bit about um, perhaps some things that you've um, you've acquired or that you've um, got in in archives that people might not ever think an archive might want?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I am totally on board with you about the antiques roadshow effect uh we started seeing that you know maybe 20 years ago um and it's been both really great and really detrimental (laughs) to archival collecting or people thinking that like for example their their old phone bills are um now worth six hundred thousand dollars and you know we've had to explain to people that i'm i'm sorry but that's not actually the case uh everything old isn't rare and everything old isn't, um, you know, worth a lot of money necessarily. Um, and things that maybe aren't worth a lot of money are however, worth, uh, a you know, a huge amount in research value. So, um, one of the things that I worked on when I was at UCLA and if I'm, known for anything in the archives world, it's probably this. But I, I started a working group at Library Special Collections to collect uh, Los Angeles-area punk rock material. And um, so, you know, the punk community uh, never made any money. Um, they were artists and musicians and uh, writers and... Um, oh. <laughs> and uh other folks who um you know didn't realize a lot of fame in their time or they didn't make a lot of money from their art but they still have some fantastically uh rich veins of material and you know their own personal archives in their possession so when we started this uh collecting effort um you know, we could see that, uh, like just a, a show flyer or something that they had held onto, um, was incredibly useful for, for research. Um, and let me see what else, um, prod me a little bit, like what kind of things are you imagining ends up in an archive that you wouldn't expect?
0: Well, I work in really um, old nineteenth-century New England farm women's diaries, and often the ones that um, I find in archives are in a box marked anonymous. They were just either donated at a time that somehow the woman's name got lost, and um, and there's often a thought that they don't say anything or that you can't you can't really find enough in them to, to make them useful. And one of the more satisfying things that I did was, um, I was using this diary and it was in a used book. The woman had taken the pound keepers record book and, um, to so the pound keeper in, um, rural New England, um, was a bit what you think of if you're thinking of the the animal pounds of today. It's where the stray animals uh, ended up, and they had an official pound keeper. And in rural communities, the stray animals were cows and pigs and sheep. And they had likely, um, if you have read or seen Anne of Green Gables, and you know the prized cow goes and destroys the prized cabbages of the neighbor and causes quite a to-do, Um, That sort of thing actually happened in rural communities. And so the the pound keeper would would have the animal um, and the fine to get the animal back was based on the poundage, the weight of the animal, plus the amount of damage the neighbor claimed um, had happened. And then you were assessed, you know, um, feed or whatnot for the time that the animal was there. And then if you said, um, you know, I'm sick of this cow, she always does this, you don't have to take her back. They'll, they'll sell her at auction. <laughs> you don't have to pay the fine. But that's where the term pound came from. And it, all of this had to be recorded. All of the details, where they found it, what the assessed damage was, how much they fed the animal, what the animal weighed, whether or not the owner wanted the animal back. And in rural communities, it, it really wasn't particularly difficult for, you know, Finger pointing of exactly right. whose it was. <laughs> Sometimes with sheep, it was a little more difficult, but overall, uh-huh. um, and uh, and so there was this used record book of all of these uh, really fascinating um, stories of um, you know animals who were had gotten out, and this woman had found it, and had written her diary in the margins, and so her name was not there. And because she was writing in the margins, the people that she wrote about, she wrote about with basically first initials. And one of my favorites was that she referred to her husband by his first initial only. And one day she was very mad at him and said that he had sat down with Satan and had himself a chat. And <laughs> I yeah, they're having some marital discord. Interesting. And so I was determined to figure out who she was. And I figured she was in some way, possibly living near uh, where these animals were escaping in order for her to have had the pound keepers record book. Now that was just a guess. Um, and then, um, figuring out some markers of the ages they must've been to be doing the tasks that she was recording the ages that her children must've been to, to have the various comings and goings that she was noting and that these rural communities, you know, maybe had a thousand people in them. So I went and got census, you know, went to the census, uh, went to go to the archive and, and look up census records. And the gentleman there very rightly said, you know, what town are you looking at? And I said, I don't know. And he said, um, well, well, what you know? what is the name of the person that you're looking for? And I said, I don't know. Don't know and that he either. Said, <laughs> That's not how this works. <laughs> and so I, I thought, well, the census is only every, every 10 years. And so I'll just pull, uh, you know, 30 years worth, you know, three different uh, census. And there's three different towns that are named and I'll look for uh, some basic profiles I'm a thousand people. How many households am I looking at? And after about an hour, I had figured out who she was. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so I was leaving and, and the gentleman came to the door and he said, well, you know, you gave it, you know, something along the lines of, well, you gave it a try. And I said, I did. And he said, well, you know, next time you come, you now you know, you need to know the name and the town. And I said, oh, no, I know exactly who she was. Yeah. And I told him, <laughs> you know, her first and last name, her husband's name, the information on the children, the town she was from. And from there, I was able to reach out to the historical society in her town. And uh, they had a state history, those those small towns, they often create, you know, town history books. And so they were able to Xerox a page all about her family and send it to me. Um, And when I was originally looking at that Pound Keepers record book, they had said to me there at that archive, you know, I don't think there's anything here for you. And, you know, I can just think of what if the person who had found it originally in the attic of that house had thrown it in the dumpster? So that's kind of a long story of a document that was really neither fish nor fowl. And it turned out to be
1: fabulous for me. That's great. I love that story. Uh, And the part about not knowing her name really resonates with me um, because I've worked quite a bit as a cataloger. And, you know, (laughs) backlogs being what they are, I know that the catalogers would love to have done all that research that you did in order to make a record for this thing that would be so much more useful for the next researcher coming along. But, you know, if we can't find a name and we, you know, if we spend a day on this one particular item and can't find a name and can't figure out, you know, who, what this marginalia means, um, we'll do as best we can to create a record for something so that researchers can find it, but it's not always going to be, you know, the perfect record or the perfect um, indicator of uh, how a source can be useful. So, um, so it's great that, you know, like we kind of the people on my side of the desk kind of get the ball rolling. Like, okay, at least we've told you that this thing is here, so you can find it and give it a shot. But, you know, it's really then up to the researcher to um, to do the delving and the you know the kind of um, shoe leather detective work that uh, that can you know unlock the key to a document like that. Catalogers, you know, would love to have the time um, to really delve deeply into uh, creating a record for an item like that. That's very detailed, but often we don't have the time uh, just due to the backlogs of materials that are that are in archives. Um, so we'd like to at least be able to present things so that you know um, that they're there, and you can maybe take a chance on something that seems like. Well, like you said, it's neither fish nor fowl, but I'll give this a shot and see if I can figure out anything about it. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that that's one of the uh, kind of like symbiotic relationships between archivists and researchers where like we kind of get you started as much as we can, but then based on our resources, we, we hand things off and let you take it the rest of the way to figure out what things really are.
0: And that's part of the excitement, I think, on both of our ends is you've acquired something because you're taking a bet on the idea that there's something here, because every archive has limited space and and usually is around, as you've said, a certain theme. They have a certain stated mission or goal. And then a scholar comes in because we're hunting around for something within that theme, and then we just you know dig deep and 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 get you know excited about decoding what's in the margins of something i mean we 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 geek out on
1: that yeah us too and it's, it's so great when researchers come up and say hey guess what i found and you know and that's great and then if we can add that to the record or we can add that information so that more people can find it in the future i mean that's just all the better
0: i was researching a diary uh, it was again a box of diaries and and i don't believe it was anonymous uh but it was a box um of diaries by this this one farm family. And I believe it was categorized under the uh, father's name of uh, what turned out to be this married woman. And in the box were just, you know, uh, quite a lot of diaries of hers. And like a lot of scholars do, I, you know, I asked for a lot of stuff. Um, I should tell listeners, I found you on a Twitter thread where you were talking about... Um, do's and don'ts of using an archive. And one of them was uh, scholars who asked for something rather large or heavy, spend two minutes with it and go, no. And, <laughs> and you have to take it back. And I was like, oh, I'm afraid Megan's met me. Uh, <laughs> because in order to, to do the work that I do about women who who really aren't known, right? You've got the finding age that uh, you've acquired it because you thought there was something there, but nobody's really come in, you know, and this is where the scholars do the work, this is the partnership with the archive, the scholars come in and dig deep and, and figure out what's, what's there. You've done the work of acquiring and preserving it, which is huge, and then we go in and decode and unpack it, and nobody yeah. had, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I'm just asking for box after box and folder after folder, and I'm looking through it as quickly as I can because I've got a grant to be there. Right. And it's, you know, minuscule and I can't afford lunch. And uh, <laughs> um, and, and um, I'm just trying to find what I'm going to be able to use. And I'm afraid I'm wasting your time in my desk space. So I'm like, no, nope, no, nope, here you go. And just handing things back, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit, I think for me, I feel like, you know, those dressing rooms where you're only allowed to try on four things and you're trying to get a pair of jeans and there's no uniform sizing for women's jeans. So you're just like, you know, you've got one leg into a pair of pants and you're like, nope. And you're like trying to like, you know, throw it back out so they can hand you another pair of jeans. Um, because you can, you know, you can only try on so many pairs at one time and no one knows what the heck a a uniform sizing is of women's jeans. And it's a bit like that when you're trying to find research on a particular topic. It's so, so personal.
1: Yes, and that analogy is so perfect. I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to steal that and use it in the future because it's just a genius um, analogy. And like, yeah, it's so hard to find what it is you're looking for. And and since you mentioned my my Twitter rant the other day, uh, I I did say something about a researcher who once asked for a double elephant folio volume, which I, I imagine that even if you don't know what that means. The the words double elephant and folio can at least uh, invoke a size, you know, a a sense of largeness, right? So it was this large, heavy volume that was stored on top of a a filing cabinet. And my partner and I had to uh, get the thing down, put it on a book truck, put the book truck onto the elevator, take the elevator down, uh, pull it out to the reading room, Get it all set up on a cradle, um, and I honestly don't even remember if we had cradles big enough for that thing to use. And then the researcher looked at it and said, "Oh, I just wanted to see what it looked like." <laughs> and you know, I want to make clear that research or that uh, researchers are perfectly welcome to um to look at anything that they want and that's the reason that they're there and the reason archivists are there is that we will happily bring you those materials (laughs) and it doesn't matter really if you're um looking at things quickly or if you decide right away oh this isn't what i wanted after all because it is our job to bring you whatever you ask for but my feeling was that you know I guess I was still kind of new as a as a reference archivist at that time. And if I had had more experience, I might have teased out through a reference interview, like, okay, well, what is it that you really want from finding this volume? And can I help you with something, some knowledge about it before I go and, you know, haul this heavy thing out for you for you to look at for two seconds. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, um, and especially with reading room rules, like, uh, with the amount of material you can look at at any one time or, um, you know, size limitations or time limitations, um, yeah, there can be some, uh, feeling of on both sides of like wasting time and not wanting to impose and feeling bad for, uh, you know, not bringing you the right thing, or, or from the researcher's point of view, if they're like, "eh, this isn't really what I wanted, I'm sorry, I bothered you. And, you know, so there's a lot of like, uh, opportunity for kind of unnecessary angst (laughs) around archives. But um, but yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I like to tell that story about the big heavy volume, just more as like a oh, hey, this is a funny thing happened to me once, not necessarily like, and this is why researchers are terrible.
0: <laughs> well, sometimes we are and we don't mean to be. So can you give us some archive etiquette? For, of course. You, you've worked at so many places and you've seen so many things. So assuming that those of us who've made missteps didn't mean to, can you can you give us some etiquette?
1: Sure. Um, and I would also say that, you know, uh, I've had my bad days too and I um you know maybe the snippiness started started on my part or you know it can be working public service uh in an archive all day every day in places that are chronically underfunded and understaffed can be draining it can it can be a toll and most of us who are in this profession are in it because we love it and because we um, want to be of service. So I guess what I would say is while we want to help you, we don't want to be treated like the help, if you understand my distinction there. Um, so I would say, uh, just be polite. You know, we don't, you don't even really have to be super friendly or you don't have to be, um, I've seen some responses on Twitter about people saying uh, that they would bring food or bring, um, bring treats to archives. Uh, And that's a very lovely gesture. And a lot of us like that and think that that's very nice, but I don't want people to feel as if they have to do that. Um, Everyone I have worked with has provided the same top-level excellent service to everyone regardless of, you know, a treat or lunch or even if you were a jerk. Like, I still gave you my best, uh, you know, my best effort of trying to be helpful to your project. So I would say um, really you just need to be polite. I think that being respectful of archivists is um just kind of the baseline and um that you know we're professionals as well uh and we have expertise that others don't have um we're there to be of service to scholarship we um we want to be of assistance um and a lot of the rules of reading rooms that can be kind of intimidating um, you know, please don't take them personally. Um, Even the most careful person can drop a pen uh, onto an irreplaceable manuscript. So that's why we ask people to use pencils. Um, If we have a limit on materials that people can look at during the day, it's because we've learned over time that that, is our capacity. That's the, that's the amount of material that we can pull and responsibly monitor in the reading room and put back at the end of the day. Um, I think one thing that people don't realize about archives is that there is a tremendous amount of work involved in really just the physicality of going into the stacks, pulling the boxes off the shelves Um, putting them on book carts, taking them to the reading room, and then having to put them back. Um, Putting things back is kind of a much more important thing than people realize, I think, because that's how someone can find things again, you know, the next time, um, is that they're back in their rightful place. And um, so what else should I say? Uh, I guess that... Um, Another etiquette, this isn't really etiquette, I guess, but I guess in order to help you better, um, archivists are often taught how to do what we call a reference interview, which is really to tease out like what it is that you're specifically looking for. And if we're asking you questions, it doesn't mean that we are trying to um, be too nosy or we're not trying to... Um, get you to reveal anything that you don't want to reveal, but it can be helpful to to have a, a clearer idea of what it is that you're looking for. Um, it's not unlike working in a bookstore where you know people will come in and say, "Do you do you have this book? I don't remember the title, but it's red." So if I'm asking you questions to kind of uh, you know pull out more information. It's because I want to make sure that I bring you the exact thing that you want, not just the red book. Uh, So um, there are so many reading rooms that are built to be beautiful and to be uh, kind of um, markers of status and grandeur and wealth And, you know, have huge pieces of art on the wall or, um, you know, very important looking furniture. And that was done on purpose. But uh, I think more modern researchers and archivists understand that that can be very off-putting in a way. And it can be very intimidating. And, um, you know, these cathedrals of learning are fantastic, but they also make you feel as if you have to whisper. Or that you have to uh you know be careful that your shoes don't squeak or something or you're afraid of dropping something. And um I I guess it's, it's easier for me to say than to be done, but uh I guess what I would say is like try, try not to let that bother you. Um it's okay to speak in a normal voice. It's okay to uh be a human being in this space you know we understand that um it can feel like uh the space itself isn't terribly welcoming but um you know i would i would hope that no one would feel so uh, you know intimidated by a space that that would keep them from doing work there um what other kind of things have you encountered that you think uh, researchers find bizarre about uh, the archives world?
0: I love that you covered that it can be intimidating because I, especially when I was first going to archives, it was really just that my, my advisors at grad school said, well, I think you're ready to start doing archival research. And that was pretty much the conversation, Um, you know, and so I was kind of, From there, figuring out where do I go, what do I do before I go. Um, And I can think of the second one that I went to was just what you've described. I felt like I was in hallowed halls, which I I was, um, and they wanted me to know that. But but it was super intimidating, um, particularly because the kind of research I do. I'm asking for anonymous things. I'm asking for um, things that I can't describe for you because your finding aid doesn't describe it because I'm still working in a pocket of women's history that um, we haven't had the resources to go ahead and reclaim their names and their details yet. And so it also makes you feel inadequate. I can't tell you what I want. I'll know it when I see it. Uh, And um, so I love that you covered the fact that it can feel really intimidating for scholars coming in. um, And that um, but the archivists working there are are partnering with us to give us the information. Um, I think um, another one is... um, Just is there a protocol before we go? I know some archivists have wished that I had reached out ahead of time and others felt that I was clogging their email box and they'd say, well, you know, it's all on our website or you can read the finding aids. And so I understand there's no universal protocol, but overall, um, is any of the intake that you talked about, is that something that we should do before we arrive?
1: Oh, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked me that. Um, My experience, since I I have been doing this since 1993, is that, um, you know, in the early days, uh, no websites, you know, it was hard to get information about um, reading room policies or or collections, Um, especially at New York Historical, a lot of our collections were not electronically cataloged in the manuscript department. So we had a very old fashioned catalog That required a lot of um, guidance and intervention. So, um, since you're talking about diaries, I happen to remember that uh, our diary collection was just filed under D for diaries, and then the the uh, the catalog cards were chronological. So, you know, you could flip through a whole bunch of three by five cards to see if there was a diary from. 1850 that you wanted. Um, so it wasn't easy and there wasn't a lot that you could do ahead of time, but now I'm so grateful that, uh, technology has advanced so far that there's a lot that you can know. I should say like in places that have the resources to, to allow this, there's a lot that you can know ahead of time. And, um, You know, as researchers, we kind of, we we might expect you to do some research uh, ahead of time and to be sure about things like opening hours and paging policies. Um, I guess, you know, just the basic due diligence of, um, you know, seeing when things are available. Um, At UCLA, for example, uh, most of our uh, archival collections were stored off-site. Uh, so not in the library building, which meant that if you got your call slips in by 10 a.m., I think it was, uh, we would most likely, like 99% of the time, be able to deliver the boxes to you, but not until like 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So if you only had one day, that really cut into your time. So we would want people to know ahead of time, like call for something today and then come see it tomorrow so that you don't waste your time. Um and so I would say be mindful of policies like that that are kind of out of the archivist control, um, so that you're not wasting your time. And we we understand that a lot of folks are on grant funding that's you know not terribly like it's helpful, but it you know there could always be more. <laughs> um, so we don't you know we don't want people to be wasting money on parking or whatever to only to learn that they can only look at something for an hour when they really need all day. Um, and uh, sure, call ahead, um, you know, clog somebody's email box. If they don't like it, they can, you know, they can <laughs> suggest to you that you politely you know, redirect your efforts. But uh, I think that, you know, one of the main um you know, one of the main tenets of library work is to save the researchers time. So if we can do something for you ahead of time or make sure that uh, something's ready and waiting for you when you get there, rather than having to, you know, sit around and wait for it, um, we want to do that for you because uh, that's part of our job. And... um, and then I guess conversely, just uh, if there's some things that we can't do for you ahead of time, to just please be patient and understand that uh, we'll you know we'll get there as soon as we can. But um, yeah, I think, uh, and I also think that researchers uh, are more prepared these days because of of things that they've been able to find online, um, and. I don't know this for sure, but uh, I have a feeling that there are fewer times when folks might just be completely unsure about what it is that they want to see. Um, but again, even if, you, even if you're not sure, uh, ideally the person on the reference desk can help you, you know, guide you in some way to help you figure out what it is that would be good for your project.
0: There's this phenomenon that one of my grad professors called serendipity, uh, which is where you just start digging around in things and it leads you to something else. And I'm a big fan of going to archives. I know it's expensive and it involves a lot of uh, logistics, but when you're doing things um, digitally, when you're, when you're using the online archives yourself, you're really dependent on making your own connections from document to document, and I'm thinking specifically of I was doing research in Vermont, and I had reached out ahead of time to this one archive. It was a small private archive, and um, the archivist was very generous. She realized how far I was coming from, and she was able to give me a few more hours a week. I you know donating her own time, which was just lovely. And because she was excited that someone was coming to read this particular diary. Um, The family itself had been well looked at, but this female family member had not. And so it meant something to her personally that I was coming to look at Anna's diary. And so as I was working with her and then she ended up inviting me out to dinner, which was really lovely. And she said something like, well, you know, um, you might next time you you visit, you might want to go read her letters. And I was like, you know where Anna's letters are? Anna's letters are saved. Anna has letters? And she said, oh, yeah, they're um, at this other archive in this other town. And then she said, "Uh, and you may want to go look at um, some of the family papers that are at this specific archive at Harvard. And I was like, yes, I do. I I would not have figured that out from the online finding aid if – they ever get the funds to digitize it and put it online, I would not have known um, all of these other connections because this person was overshadowed by so many other things in the family. And yet to me, because I specifically are interested in women and the untold stories of women, I was thrilled to make this track to these two other archives Um, and, and, read more about her. And that serendipity was because I went in person.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And that, um, someone was able to to tell you like, oh, there are these other connections that I'm sure it took her, uh, you know, many, I I don't know how long she had worked there, but like these are the types of things that you figure out over time. And after helping several different researchers, you know, you start to make connections or put things together and, you know, that kind of job experience or, um, it, you know, knowledge of the collections becomes so rich and deep the longer you work at a place like that. Um, yeah, it definitely helps to pick the brain of the person who's in charge of, of dealing with the records and the, and the kind of daily, uh, you know, use of them. Um, so two things I wanted to say were that, uh, there is a a very strong movement in the archival profession these days to, um, to do kind of what they call reparative uh, uh, description. And yeah, the number of times I can tell you collections that have been like, you know, a big famous man collection. Oh, but by the way, like 50% of it is from his wife who doesn't even get a first name. Um, So, there are there are many archivists who are working on um, especially collections having to do with people of color to create better finding aids that are more accurate and more um, what's the word I want more uh, that explain to researchers better like what's in the collection and so for example there's a lot of work at UCLA being done on the um, Japanese internment camps. Um, So now, you know, we're taking the word internment out and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're prison camps basically. Right. So, um, or changing things um, to indicate that, you know, yes. Okay. Maybe the collection is called by this name, but these 10 other people are hugely important in it and they just don't get their name in the, in the title um so that's one thing that i think is really interesting um you know kind of making sure that collections are described better and again it's it's a it's um a question of resources like you know do you want to spend the time kind of redoing work when there's so much material that hasn't had any work done on it yet but you know something like um japanese relocation it's so hugely important that you know, we think it's worth the time to make sure that it, you know, these places didn't just sound like summer camps where we were sending, you know, American citizens during the war. So that's one thing. Um, And the second thing that I wanted to say was that (laughs) I'm hoping I'll remember it. It will come to me in a second Um, that uh, that archivists uh, in the past have been permanent positions at places um, and have had the opportunity to uh, process collections, serve them in the reading room, be a source for, uh, for reference, and really come to know the collections and have a deep knowledge of the materials that they work with all the time and are therefore better able to help the researchers who come and use that material. However, in the past, I would say 20 years or so, um, our profession has become or our institutions have become more and more reliant on um, precarious labor, kind of like an adjunct professor position where you know you're hired to work on this one collection, you finish it, and then you lose your job. So uh, and then the institution, what they have gained by uh, having a collection processed is great. But what they've lost is the institutional knowledge that can be built up around these collections when they lose people who are just kind of like churned through a revolving door of, of temporary positions. So one thing um, that I think you know, if I can get on my soapbox for a minute, as if I haven't already, <laughs> uh, what I would really love is for researchers who to understand that and to know that um, we could really use help in advocating to our administrators and to um, funding agencies to have to create a better. Systems so that people can be more um, more efficiently employed, and you know, it kind of uh, there are a lot of archivists who have left the profession because they're constantly having to deal with these like temporary jobs or having to move, or they work for two years and then they're not sure what's going to happen next. And I think that if anything, um, the historians that I was trying to reach out to on Twitter. Uh you know, we have they have that in common with archivists. It's like there's so many professors who are working these adjunct positions and they're they're not sure what's going to happen to them in the next year or two or, um, or they're working you know, at three different places and making25,000 dollars a year um, between that and our our student debt uh, burdens, you know, archivists and historians, and we should be, we should be much stronger allies than I think we are. You know, I think that we are good allies uh, to begin with, but, you know, we have so much in common that we really, uh, we could be even stronger if we listen to each other about those issues.
0: I love that you said that because my final question was going to be, can you tell us why archives are important, why we need to be using them in person and why we need to be putting support behind them?
1: Archives are are important, you know, kind of both simply and um, extraordinarily complicatedly, (laughs) if that's a word, um, because they are the records of humanity. And sometimes when I say things like that, I feel a little lofty, um, but uh, I think I was asked a jury duty once, like, "What is an archivist?" And I said, "Well, we we document the human experience, right? So that can sound a little um, flighty, maybe, or you know, but it, it's true. Uh, you know, without records of um, what people have done in the past, we would have no understanding of how people lived. Um, records are." Uh, you know, kind of the backbone of our democracy, and, and equitable access to those records uh, is a cornerstone of um, a well functioning democratic government. And maybe I'll take this opportunity to say that um, the American uh, Historian Association letter uh, that I was kind of reacting to in in the Twitter uh, rant that uh, brought us together. Is that I? I firmly believe that it is absolutely our right as citizens to ask government agencies to be transparent and to explain, like, okay, well, what is your plan for making the records available to us, and what what is, you know, how is this going to work? And that's um, that's perfectly fine. That wasn't my objection to some of the things that were said in that letter. My objection was more like the way it was somewhat condescending and as if, you know, as if archivists at NARA in particular and elsewhere in general haven't already thought of the things that the AHA was asking us to think about. And um it didn't seem to be as sensitive to our health and safety and well-being as it could have been. So I really appreciated the kind of retraction apology that the that the organization um, sent out a few days after their initial letter. Um, But I think that, uh, you know, using archives in person has a type of, and I don't want to be too, you know, metaphysical or anything, but like it has a type of effect where you really do seem to garner a better understanding of the information that you're trying to gather when you can see it in its original form. And, um, you know, sometimes we ask researchers to, you know, first use microfilm or first make sure to look at the digital uh, surrogates or to, to first, you know, try other uh, sources so that we can better preserve materials that, uh, that might be too delicate to handle frequently. But, you know, there is that that moment where and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, especially if you work with diaries a lot, like you you kind of feel a real connection to the person who wrote something and you're holding the piece of paper that they wrote it on, you know, and like there are things that have just given me chills to to hold and to engage with and to learn from. And I don't. I don't like to sound like uh you know there's something magical or um uh I always like to refer to uh the work of uh, our colleagues about vocational awe you know there's there's um we we shouldn't you know your whole point is to demystify so I don't want <laughs> I don't want to sound as if I'm like laying on more layers of mystification <laughs> but uh, you know there's something really um connective about working with original material. So um I would hope that uh if anyone wanted to take anything away from what I've said over the past few minutes is that uh I hope people can understand that the the folks doing this work um you know there's they come from a lot of different backgrounds. They have a lot of different types of expertise. Um and we could really use the support from people who use the material, because a lot of what we do is kind of behind the scenes or, or behind the closed doors of the stacks, and uh, a lot of our labor is uh, invisible to start with, and then elided in some cases uh, just by systems that are kind of out of our control. Um. You know, things like, um, well, when I first started working, like it wasn't, no one ever put their own name on a finding aid, like you would write a finding aid, and it was for the institution. So it wasn't, there was no need for your name to be on it. But after a while, it seemed like uh, there was more of a push for um, uh, authority and like revealing people's biases uh, in what they, you know, in the ways that they may have processed collections. So, uh, it became more important for people to say like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm this person, I have this type of experience and this is, I'm the person who processed these papers and you can also ask me questions about it if you know who I am. So, um, so that kind of, uh, you know, um, how do I want to say this? So that kind of recognition of the archivist, uh, someone who's worked on these collections has become more important in the past 15 years, I would say. And, uh, and I kind of like that because it means that, um, you know, the person who did the work of the processing can be found and asked questions and um, has the ability to, to communicate more if need be.
0: I love how much you've demystified and unpacked there. I, it makes me think again of the example I gave early on about, the diary that was in the margins of the pound keeper's record book. I did give uh, that entire uh, article that I wrote uh, to to the archive, and said, you know, you may want to know this. And and it wasn't that like here, read my fancy research. It was to you know because so they could see the the, the work I had done to to, uh, to um, authenticate what I was saying. So they could determine if they want to go ahead and put her name and her town and her information on it. Do they feel I provided legitimate research, which is why I gave them the whole article rather than just a, you know, a paragraph.
1: Um, And there's also going to be bosses somewhere who say like, well, what does this archivist do all day? And then if that archivist can say, well, someone came in and used this material that I was able to give them and she wrote this amazing article about it, like this is why we're doing what we're doing.
0: Yeah. And so they put it, they put it in the finding aid, but they didn't put my name. And, and and so the feeling is just what you described. It's not that I need um, recognition. It's that I'm excited about what I do. There aren't that many of us. As you said, we kind of, those of us who are able to make a contribution towards an archive may be in a precarious spot with that archive. So for you to know who did the work to to find out about this document, then you can find me. But if you don't know, then you're asking the archivist on duty, and and they they didn't connect with that document because as you've pointed out, they have thousands and thousands of documents there. So you know it's um, they've come in contact with so many other materials, but not that one. So they can't answer further questions. Um, but I could, but my name's not there. But then later on, um, a different uh, archive where I I um, was there on a fellowship, and I worked on a particular uh, a woman for them, they, uh, they did put my stuff in the finding aid. And so um, and again, not, not uh, because I, I need credit, but then a scholar was able to reach out to me and say, hey, I'm actually doing some research on this lady too. Can we trade some emails? Which was lovely because for those of us who aren't working with famous people, it's for us to be able to track each other down uh, or to find the, the archivist who does know more which I'm not, I'm not an archivist, Uh, it is lovely to to put those records together more fully.
1: Yeah. And that's um, another part of the Archivist Code of Ethics is that we're obliged, well, we, I'm not sure if obliged is the right word, but we're we're encouraged to match people who are doing research in similar ways or on similar things, not to reveal um, any sources or information that people don't want to share, But just, you know, if you're working on something, I know somebody who's working on something similar. If I connect the two of you, you can make sure that you're not duplicating effort and that, you know, or even if you are, you can, uh, you can share information and um, really contribute to scholarship all that much more.
0: I love that. Um, What do you hope listeners will take away? Ah,
1: um, I, Well, as I said before, we, we connected over this, um, Twitter, uh, thread that I started, uh, out of somewhat out of frustration and somewhat out of like, well, Hey, I'm just gonna, it it was a very spur of the moment kind of thing. So, um, I, I spoke a lot about kind of like people behaving badly in the archives and I focused on stories about historians in particular, I knew because of the AHA letter to NARA, um, And I wanted to just personally uh, say that I hope people don't think I'm just kind of like the grumpy old archivist sitting behind the reference desk and complaining about people because I have known so many wonderful people uh, and there have been so many lovely uh, encounters and even just, you know, even just encounters that were polite and like friendly, but, you know, not terribly memorable. Um, But then also, you know, I've made very close friendships and, and strong relationships of deep respect with people I've worked with. And um, I wanted to make sure that people understood I was talking generally about historians, not all the other kinds of people who work in archives. Um whether they're artists or uh independent writers or musicians or any kind of folks. Uh and my point I guess was basically that even though you know there's kind of a again a, a mystery around historic work or historians work um they are professionals that we kind of expect a level of uh uh, civility from a level of politeness and um, you know the archivist on the other side of the desk is, um, is also a professional and would just basically like to be treated as such and uh, you know one of the problems I guess when I was starting out in this field is that I was very young and it was a new job for me and it was very hard to be uh it was intimidating for me to be in the presence of you know these kind of exalted historians and um some of them were absolutely delightful and perfectly lovely and some of them you know were not (laughs) just to be uh blunt about it just to be precise and i guess uh the most important takeaway I think is please don't be intimidated by archives. We want people to come in and use the stuff. We love the material. Uh, We want people to use it. We want people to know how amazing and exciting and fantastic it is. And we are so happy when I'm saying we a lot, uh, I should really only speak for myself, but I think I know enough archivists to say like, we really love it when we can connect someone with the exact source that they need. And when they come back and tell us, Oh, thanks, this was so great or just what I wanted. Or, you know, conversely, like, well, I'm really glad I looked at this because at least now I know it's not what I thought it was and it isn't going to be helpful after all, but thank you for showing it to me because now I know, um, you know, those kinds of interactions were really just the reason that we do this kind of work. And um if you have questions, please ask. And if, if, uh, if, you know, if archivists hand you something to read like a list of rules or something, it's usually because we've had to say the same things, you know, 200 times and are tired of it, but, uh, we're happy to answer questions. We're happy to, uh, to help, to navigate, to point you in the right direction to, um, Make sure that uh, if there's something that you haven't thought of, we can be of assistance, uh, and um, that we all need to recognize the importance of these materials. We have um, a huge uh, crisis coming our way in terms of climate change that you know could affect uh, archival repositories. Um, And we need to be prepared for those uh, changes in the future. And so please, um, for your listeners, I would say please uh, continue to be our allies and to be uh, our partners in scholarship and in preservation and in um, all of the things that make archives just the wonderful things that they are.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Megan Frazier, and telling us about archivists and archives and the etiquette that scholars can, can bring when we visit you. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.